Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hello there, and thanks for checking in with us again at ANU's Democracy Sausage Extra. Well, isn't it about time we caught up with what's going on in Old Blighty? And who better to do that with than a couple of Democracy Sausage favourites, Elizabeth Ames and Bevan Shields. Elizabeth Ames is a former Australian diplomat, a general polymath, who is now Chief Operating Officer with Atalanta, a company committed to advocating gender equality and working with firms and governments to bring that about. She's also Chair of the Menzies Australia Institute at King's College London and a Director of the Britain Australia Society. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be back, even if we're still in lockdown and nothing much has changed here. Yeah, well, we're going to come to that. Uh, Bevan Shields is the London-based and super-connected Europe correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Australia's two best newspapers in my point of view. And he's also, of course, an old Bureau colleague of mine in the Canberra Press, press Gallery. Welcome back, Bevan. Hello, Mark. Good to, good to be back. It is really good to have both of you back on Democracy Sausage. We, you've become you know, excellent and uh, authoritative conduits for us for uh, what's going on uh, in in Britain, over particularly over this period of COVID, um, so let's let's uh, sort of start there, really, uh, because the situation in Australia versus the situation in Britain, I think, has become uh, even further apart over recent times. And I suspect, just anecdotally, that uh, a number of Australians have kind of lost touch with where things are at uh, in Britain. So. Um, who would like to start? Perhaps Elizabeth, uh, can you just give us a bit of a snapshot of uh, conditions in in Britain now in terms of uh, COVID and, and the lockdown? So the COVID daily cases are actually falling quite substantially now, and that's uh, in part because we've been in a strict lockdown since just after the disastrous attempt at having a Christmas. Um, 
but also because the vaccine rollout has been going incredibly well. Uh, loath as I am to give the Johnson government much uh, praise or praise for anything they've done in um, in this COVID situation. They have handled the vaccine rollout well. So we're down to daily cases. I think today was down under 5,000 reported cases, which is the lowest it's been. I know that sounds crazy to an Australian listener. It sure does. To a Brit, 5,000 <laughs> 5, cases sounds fantastic. Um, and we're well back down sort of under sort of 300 or so daily deaths. And at the worst, we were up more uh, around sort of 1,500 deaths a day. So things are definitely getting better, but we've now been in lockdown more or less on and off for a year. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Children went back to school on Monday, but there is still a very long path until some form of normality, which we are promised we will get to by the 21st of June. Yeah, that timetable is really, um, it, it's quite specific, isn't it? There's a whole series of dates that have been um, put down uh, to for, for what you can expect and when, and, and mostly those dates are expressed in terms of these restrictions will come off not before a given time. So there's another one coming up on the 29th of March, I think, and then one in April, May, and, and uh, culminating in that, uh, what is it, 21st of June, which is some way away and that just goes to uh, to explain i suppose you know quite graphically what a dramatically different situation it is bevan i assume that uh, you know pretty well everyone is still working from home one of the uh, changes that that came in as elizabeth said in the last couple of days was the return of school and i think that was going to be accompanied by uh, allowing two people to meet outside uh, has that actually accompanied it and uh, that in itself, I think, it just shows what a vast gulf there is between the situation pertaining here and over there. Um, like, just think back two years ago, if you were to say in two years we'd be talking about being allowed to sit outside on a park bench with someone else. It's just so nuts. The whole thing is nuts, but that's the world we're in. So, yeah, there are these very, <laughs> very small freedoms being offered. But as Elizabeth said, it's a, it's a long way back and it's a long and slow way back because Boris Johnson doesn't want to ever have to go back into lockdown again. Um, I don't think he could withstand that politically and I don't think the economy could survive that either. So they're really making the most of, I mean, there's been a lot of great data around how infections have dropped and hospitalizations and deaths and a big chunk of that is the vaccination program kicking in. But it has to be remembered that probably the majority of it is this pretty blunt, brutal lockdown that has been in place for quite a while now. So it's a long time to come, but people see, I don't know, Elizabeth, people seem to be, there's no great anger or outrage about this. I think people seem to accept that the situation is what it is and they can see light at the end of the tunnel and they're and they're prepared to go along with it. But if it would be a very different story if the vaccination program was sort of bumbling along and, and not and not achieving a lot. That's really been a game changer. I, I agree. I think we all know I mean my my uh fiance has now had his vaccine. Uh several of our older friends and all of our friends who are doctors and, and nurses have had their first vaccines. So I think without that there wouldn't be a lot of hope and there would be a lot more anger. As it is, the sense I get talking to people at a distance on the street is people are resigned, they're exhausted, they're completely sick of it, but they understand that we need to do it once, we need to do it properly, and we need to not make the mistakes that were made last year. The vaccination 
program to me is <laughs> is so remarkable in that in the sense that every other part of the British state, the machinery of state, basically failed in the in the first stages of the pandemic. It was slow, it was hopeless, it was useless, it couldn't keep up, people made terrible decisions. But the state machinery has really rallied for the for the for the vaccine rollouts. And I just find that contrast I, I still can't quite get my head around that contrast really. It's it it is amazing. Um and it's it's happened right at the, the time when we really need it. It's one of those things I think uh, you've noted, Bevan, actually, that because uh, Australia has um, has made a point, the Australian government has made a point that we can have a, a, a slower and more orderly rollout. That uh, you know we can learn from the mistakes being made overseas. Um, implication of that being in places like the UK. But in fact, the vaccine rollout has been a spectacular success so far. I really resent this messaging. It's not just the Australian government. You've seen it from the French and the Italians as well, in particular around the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which suffered properly from slightly too much hype when it was being developed. And this messaging that you have to go slow because the vaccine isn't proven and that you need to test it in other populations is only contributing to vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vax movement. And I think it is incredibly irresponsible. The Australian government should be honest and say, we didn't order enough vaccines early enough. We don't have enough domestic capacity. And that's why we're going slow. We're not going slow because we want to, you know, have everyone in the UK be our sort of testing agents. We're going slow because we didn't get onto this soon enough. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, there's been a bit of that going on. Governments all over the world in one way or another have been using that kind of device, explaining slow decision-making as orderly process or as everything being under control. There's no doubt that as other countries were signing contracts with vaccine companies um, early on, Australia was relatively slow in that process. It's made a virtue of that. The government has tried to anyway by talking about its portfolio approach Um and we even had a situation here in the last few days where Italy blocked a uh, consignment of AstraZeneca vaccine that was being imported to Australia. Uh, and uh, the Australian government's response was, this doesn't affect our vaccine rollout program at all uh, because uh, you know one of the decisions that we made, that is Australia made, was to um, you know have um, local production of that vaccine and that comes online as of the end of March and so it won't have any effect. But it sort of defies... Credulity. Presumably, we weren't. We wouldn't have been importing it if we weren't about to use it. Uh, so, governments are always finding ways to make things look procedural and uh, and 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 as if they were always part of the plan. But there's been a, a degree of uh, chain dragging going on. And of course, in Britain, that's been at, on an epic scale. Not so much about the vaccines, which, as you've just both been saying, is is actually being done surprisingly well. But the, the lockdown that we've just been talking about and indeed the attitude uh, that both of you have referred to in terms of the public sentiment about this, it seems to me that it's all part of a kind of a belated recognition that a lot of this hard work should have been done at the start. I mean, there have been 125,000 deaths in the UK related to COVID. Um, so you, you can't help but conclude that perhaps if a lot of these very serious measures uh, hadn't had been you know brought in right at the start of this process, then uh, perhaps we could have avoided or you could have avoided some of those deaths. And, but people also say, you could also look at it the opposite way. People say, 
lockdowns don't work. I mean, imagine the death toll if even as late as the first lockdown came and, they, and the various missteps that occurred. Imagine the death toll if we hadn't have had those lockdowns. I mean, that that to me does illustrate the seriousness of, of COVID. I think the, the debate of whether it's serious or not is largely moved on. There are still some fringe people who think it's not, it's you know, worse than the flu. But just imagine if 125,000 people have died with, as Elizabeth says, months and months of lockdown over the last year. Just imagine if we didn't even have that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But it hasn't been cheap, of course, uh, not just in terms of the cost to lives, but uh, but the cost to the economy uh, and the, the amount of money that's been ploughed into this. Uh, I saw recently somewhere that uh, it's in the order of £37 billion that has been committed to the um, to the campaign, to the, to, to the various measures to manage this pandemic uh, going out to... Uh, I think twenty twenty four or twenty five. No, Mark, you've uh, you've you've lowballed it. You've massively lowballed it. It'll be end up being about four. It'll end up being about four hundred and seven billion pounds on stimulus payments and wage subsidies and other right. support by the time they're right. Uh, sorry, they're I was finished. talking about the sort of medical side of it, like uh, the vaccines and. The, oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but uh, yeah, it's a very good point you make. I mean, the 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 overall cost to this is absolutely astronomical. Uh, and the economic damage that's been done is is very high. Some of the figures are, are, are pretty amazing. Um, as we say, in 125,000 deaths, um, there's been 900 million tests done um, uh, and more than 2 million people have been trace contacted. Uh, just so, so that's where the, the sort of money has been spent, the 37 billion mostly has been spent on those kinds of measures. Well, and there was a report today, uh, Mark, saying that that test and trace system was essentially an abject failure, <laughs> that it had made zero difference to the spread of COVID in this country. So test and trace has not worked, uh, partly because there were too many, a little bit like what happened in Melbourne when Victoria had to lock down. By the time they started test and trace, there were too many people infected with too many contacts and you just could not trace them all. But they also did what happened in Australia as well, where they outsourced the testing and tracing to centralised units and to the private sector and they didn't rely on local government and local government know-how and local government health officials. So you had someone sitting in a call centre in Birmingham calling up someone in Cornwall with no understanding of the local context or who they might know and how they might get around. So that has essentially been £37 billion flushed entirely down the drain. And I noticed that uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, uh, is now using the rather pithy line. It's probably a government line you're about to tell me, but uh, data, not dates, will lift the lockdown. So none of, even the dates, even the timetable that's been set out will be um, subject to you know the, the progress of all of this. Um, what's the next restriction uh, easing that will be important to, to, to Britain? Is it the ability to meet in groups of six, I think? Yep, that's coming up on the 29th of March. We will be allowed to sit in private gardens uh, as well as in parks in groups of six. And then on the 12th of April, beer gardens in pubs will open. So a terribly exciting date. I'm looking forward to not washing up my own beer glass anymore. Um, <laughs> but it is it is very, very slow going. You know, the dates are subject to change. Although interestingly, there's a lot of messaging that whilst it's data, not dates, none of those dates will shift earlier. And that's because they're deliberately leaving five weeks between each of the relaxations so that you have 
two virus cycles, so two two week virus cycles, and then a week to announce the change will come in, giving people a week to prepare for that change. So they are being, I would say, much more systematic about it this time than previously. And Bevan, Scotland has just, I think, uh, made some changes to its timetable as well for uh, for the easing of restrictions. I think that m- sort of broadly brings it in more in line with 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 England's uh, timetable. Is that correct? Yeah, they've they've always been a little bit out of sync with England. So was so was Wales and Northern Ireland. But um, it's it will all happen at roughly the same time, give or take give or take a week or two. I'm personally most looking forward to Barber's reopening in mid-April because uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long four or five months, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine that, actually. That would not be good. Um, but, uh, yes, I can't see you on this, uh, on, on this uh, audio link that we have here. I can see Elizabeth, thanks to the, uh, the marvels of the internet in this particular program, but I can't see you, and I suspect that's the reason why you've turned off your camera. It's a, it's it's a factor. It's a factor. <laughs> <laughs> what about the economy? How is uh, how is the British economy travelling? How badly hit has it been? Well, it's um, it is forecast to have uh, well, fell ten percent uh, last year, which was the highest fall in uh, highest one year fall of in Europe, and it was the largest on record in the UK for 300 years, back to the great frost in the 1700s. So absolutely monumental. It, and, it, and it is, there is a lot of pent-up demand. When things reopen, people will be back out and spending. But by the government's own forecasts, even in five years' time, it will still be 3% smaller than it would have been had the pandemic not appeared. So, it's taken a huge hit and it's going to take a lot of time to come back. The we We're talking about the budget earlier. The, the, it's not a huge problem, but it's a problem that the government faces is how is it going to deal with this monumental borrowing that, a program that it's been on for the last 12 months? Um, uh, borrowing is debt as a share of GDP is going to peak at nearly 100%. Now, that's well over double what Australia will. Um, this uh, this financial year, the UK will borrow $355 billion, I think it is, and uh, $234 billion the next year. So it's and that's huge pounds, right? Money at the, that's pounds, yeah, huge money. The most uh, borrowed, uh, comparable only with what was borrowed during the two world wars. So it's huge money and the government has got a problem in how does it start to address the debt load without damaging the economy. And they've they've started to do that. They're going to increase the corporate tax rate from 19% to 25%, uh, which is quite a big, quite a big shift and, a, and quite a big thing for a conservative government to do. And they're going to freeze the income tax threshold so they won't rise with inflation. And those measures will give them in a couple of few, uh, I think it's it's tens of billions, but it's nowhere near what will be needed long term to to bring the debt levels down. The other thing to say about the economic damage which we've seen worldwide is that it is sector specific. So some sectors are still doing very well. The company I run, we're in services, we've been able to move entirely online, and in fact we have tripled in size over lockdown. But 
other sectors, particularly service sectors, which tend to be very feminized workforces, have seen huge layoffs and huge cuts, and there's no sense that they will be able to recover or come back in the same way. So it's not just that there's economy-wide damage, there's very, very deep sectoral scars and the impact of those sectoral scars on the people who work in those sectors and the ability to get those people back into jobs should be weighing very heavily on the government. And it seems amazing to look at it from afar and, and to think that all of this economic damage has been done in in economies, in this particular case in, in the British economy, where the emphasis early on in the pandemic was always we have to keep the economy open, we have to keep large swathes of, thing, of things going. So in a sense, the uh, the economy first approach has proved to be uh, an utter disaster, economically speaking. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about it several times in this podcast before, but you will see the UK having one of the highest death rates in the sort of OECD, the developed world, as well as one of the highest damages to their uh, overall economic performance. So, and then you layer the Brexit chaos on top of that, which I'm sure the government in some ways is pleased is being sort of hidden because the numbers around COVID are so huge, you don't notice an extra one or 2% because of border chaos. Um, And it really does create long-term scarring that, as Bevan says, the government's going to have to be quite creative to, to recover from. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, we were talking about the economy and, uh, and, and and the chaos that's been enacted on it by by government policy in response to to COVID. So, you know, a combination of things. Uh, and one of the things that Elizabeth mentioned was, of course, uh, Brexit, which had divided Britain like no other subject. There's another big story that's dividing Britons at the moment. I, I've seen, and that is the uh, the interview that Meghan and Harry did with Oprah Winfrey. Um, tell us about that, Elizabeth, it, because I've seen some polling. I think it was a YouGov poll that showed that for people under the age of 24, they were overwhelmingly taking the side of, of Megan, uh, who had made some pretty harsh critique, uh, issued a pretty harsh account of, um, of what life was like inside the royal family. There's an allegation of, of, uh, of racism, uh, and, uh, and, and of, you know, just a whole, a general cold heartedness. Uh, the, the, how lonely she was, mental health problems and the like, and insensitivity to that. And there's been a response now from HRH, uh, uh, Her Majesty. The uh, but um, um, tell us just uh, what? How big is this story in the UK? 
Well, it's managed to push COVID and Brexit off the front pages for the first time in about six years. So I would say it's definitely Thank the biggest God. story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's been it's been great copy. Um, I mean, it's it's super interesting. I have always been quite sympathetic, um, in particular to Megan. I do think the British press coverage of her was pretty out of order. Some of the some of the interesting coverage is where you compare what was said about um, Kate Middleton and what was said about Meghan Markle in terms of, you know, baby bumps and avocado on toast. There's some really striking headline comparisons. But I think the problem is that it's become so divided that you can't say, well, you know, they seem like they were hard done by, but they're also a little bit irritating. Um <laughs> And you can't have that conversation because it's become so polarised. You either have to be completely kind of team royal family in the UK or team Meghan and Harry in in LA, and there's not much in between. What's your take on it, Bevan? <laughs> well, I love it. It's great. As a journalist, <laughs> it's fantastic. And people, I mean, people like to say they don't read it, but of course they do. We We track analytics on our websites very closely, as you would know, Mark, and people cannot get enough of it. They're reading every word and every story. And of course, because who wouldn't, who would turn away when there's a slow train wreck happening right in front of you? Um, it is really interesting though. The, we're talking about polls. The, there was a YouGov, another YouGov poll that shows that this is playing out very differently depending in, in which, on which country, in which country you're in. And, and this is, a sort of overlooked thing in this that, yes, Harry and Meghan lived in Britain, they've got connections to Britain, of course, but they now live in America and they've signed deals with Netflix and Spotify. They're building their brand in America. So that's where their interview was targeted, I think, rather than trying to repair their sort of fractured relationship with the British public. And this new YouGov poll found that 68% of people in the U.S., have sympathy for the for the couple compared to only twenty nine percent in the UK. So if I was on you know Harry and Meghan's PR team, I would be very happy with that. I probably wouldn't be too concerned about the twenty nine percent. But it is it is a remarkable story. It is on par, I think, with the the Princess Diana saga of the nineties and some of the stuff that they claim, not just about racism and that she was effectively abandoned when she was on the verge of suicide, but really pointed stuff about the breakdown in the relationship between Prince Harry and his father and brother was quite remarkable. And, and I think one of the most amazing things was when he effectively said, Charles and William are trapped. They were, they're trapped just like I was. I was lucky enough to, to get out of it. And for two future kings, that's a, that's a very, sort of ugly, damaging thing to, to sort of have around them. I loved as well, I think the the best story I've seen about it was actually comparing how much the public is enjoying this in a time of great difficulty with the abdication crisis in 1936, which of course, you know, coming out of the Great Depression and then all of the problems leading up into World War II. And there was a brilliant diarist um, at the time and they published some of the extracts this week. And they said, the public hasn't enjoyed anything so much as the abdication crisis. It's really taken our minds off things. And I thought, oh, isn't it funny that sort of nearly a hundred years later, the exact same thing is playing out. We're all a bit miserable. We're all stuck at home. We don't know what the future is, but here are the Royal family putting on a great show to keep us all entertained. 
unfortunately for Harry, though, he doesn't uh, he doesn't quite rank uh, in the scheme of things. Really, he's 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 really not that significant <laughs> in the royal family. He's never going to be king. The abdication was about a king. Um, unfortunately, Harry uh, Harry doesn't really matter, but that doesn't stop us all being interested in it. Harry's down the list a bit, that's true, but nonetheless he is the son of Diana, of course, and, um, and uh, you know, so there's a really interesting, um, I guess, uh, symmetry there or connection there to, to, the, to, the, you know, to the other major crisis that you, you talked about, Bevan. I'm, mm. I'm interested also in the extent to which this has been sort of turbocharged before the fact, effectively preconditioned by the Crown itself, you know, that, that is the, the TV show, the Netflix show, because what we saw there, and, and we've all seen it, was, uh, you know, laid out in, in graphic detail. It's obviously, you know, a, a fictional or partly fictional uh, depiction, but um, with a lot of uh, fact behind it as well. I think Robert Lacey was a, a consultant to that, um, um, you know, to that series. What we saw there was an incredibly cold and disconnected and emotionally dead family, really, uh, and uh, the the way that Diana was treated within that family. But not just that. I mean, the, the whole uh, relationship between Charles and his parents uh, was was um, really chilling to watch. I think uh, the extent to which you know he was just alone, lost, uh, and and here we have now a circumstance playing out that sits very comfortably with that image that was created by by the Crown. So uh, perhaps that, Elizabeth, plays into um, uh, the, the, you know, as I said, the, the, the polling that shows that younger people in particular immediately feel that what Megan has said, uh, you know, uh, rings true. Yeah, I absolutely think that. And one of the really sad things, of course, is that Charles didn't want to replicate that difficult relationship he has with his father with his sons. And in fact, um, by all accounts, in fact, Charles and Harry were closer than Charles and William. William um, famously has a very bad temper and can be quite difficult to get on with, and Harry is much more happy-go-lucky. So whilst Bevan says you know, Harry isn't in the line of succession, he isn't that important, the breakdown of his relationship with two future kings actually does cast a huge pall across the family and I think we'll certainly have, you know, Australians, Canadians, Kiwis thinking about whether or not this family is who they want as their heads of state. My hot take, Mark, for what it's worth is that Prince Charles is going to be a brilliant king. He's been written off as a complete lunatic, someone who used to talk to trees uh, and I think... I, I'm, I do not buy the argument that suddenly Australia, there'll be a surge of republicanism in Australia once the Queen dies. I, I don't buy that argument, and I think Charles might actually be a lot better than people think. Well, that's uh, in, in some ways for a Republican such as myself uh, a, a grim prediction, but at another level I don't have any great trouble agreeing with you. I, 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 I think it's almost, you know, um, it's almost that it's the relationship that Australia now has with the royal family. And I heard Lacey making this point in an interview the other day. He said, it's not just our royal family, it's your royal family. He was talking to Fran <laughs> Kelly, I think. Um, and I thought, really? It's our royal family? That's, a, that's an absurd notion. Um, but but I, I guess Australia's relationship with it is is as a kind of, um, you know, a, a, an anachronism, something that's sort of interesting and curious and and kind of fun to watch from time to time. 
And really, apart from that, we don't have to worry about it too much. And so I suspect partly for that reason uh, that, that you're right. Australians just aren't capable of becoming sufficiently animated about the royal family to, to you know, go through that whole debate, at least not in, in, the, uh, in the immediate future. But as to how Charles conducts himself, well, you know, he is, he is a, he's an interesting character. He's a more interesting character than, than some others, more complicated, occasionally says sure. bizarre things like his father, um, but also uh, is quite progressive in some areas. He's been well ahead of, of, of many political leaders on environmental questions for a long time, even if that did begin with a certain amount of conversation with trees. I think they call them trunk calls. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> now, Bevan, let's go. Let's let's just uh, in, the, in the few moments we've got left. Um, happy happy to hear both of your views on this. Uh, tell us where we're up to on the OECD uh, presidency, uh, if that's what it is, or CEO. I can't remember. Whatever it is that uh, that Matthias Corman is angling for. Well, Mark, I've been covering this since last year and every twist and turn, and it sort of feels like Christmas Eve at the moment because uh, we should know in the next 48 hours uh, what the result is. He's down to the final two out of 10 candidates, and that is a lot further than a lot of people thought. A lot of people, when I first started writing about his candidacy, were saying, the OECD would never have him. Of course, they would never touch him. They'd never go near this guy. And now that he's in the final two, the argument is, oh, um, how how has that happened? The OECD is terrible. They can't possibly um, they can't possibly uh, be thinking of taking him. But they are. And the, the chief criticism of him publicly and in the media is his connections to the climate change and the various actions that the coalition government has taken or not taken on climate change. But behind the scenes in his lobbying, there are a lot of other factors at play here. China is at play, the digital economy, the recovery from the pandemic. And, you know, it's climate is not the candidacy killer that some people thought it would be. So he's very close. I I think he will I'll, – I'll be really brave and regret this when he doesn't, but I think he will win probably. Um, uh, but it is really, really close. And, if, and, if, and one factor here is that the OECD has never been led by a woman and uh, Cecilia Malmstrom is a very strong candidate and she is pushing that factor very hard. So it is up in the air. But if, if you did have a gun to my head, I'd say he's probably – uh, just just ahead at the moment. The other thing I think to add is that obviously you've got the COP26 meeting this year in the UK and there's a really big sense that climate change sort of discourse and discussions will move on quite strongly. Boris Johnson, his government, are backing it. They're pushing Morrison and the Australian government to come on board and announce stronger action against climate change. You've obviously got Joe Biden now in the White House working on climate change. So it might be that the necessity of a really strong on climate change person at the OECD has has lessened, that you don't have to focus on that as much for this job. And so that's kind of allowed Matthias Cormann to, to skate past a little bit. And it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge my former colleagues in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who have played a blinder in supporting Matthias Cormann in his candidacy, who helped him 
the meetings that he needed to get across the EU, helped him to lobby, made sure that we had the relationships with the governments that they needed in order to be able to put his candidacy forward and ask those countries to support him and to support Australia. And, you know, we don't talk often enough about the work our diplomats do overseas. We certainly don't fund it well enough. But if he wins, it will be all credit due as well to Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that has really pushed that candidacy and has stepped up to the plate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to to make. Um, I'm, I'm interested also in the in the point you make about the the, the changing emphasis on climate change. It, I have to say, as a as an Australian political journalist through the period that Matthias Cormann, you know, came into the Parliament and uh, and rose to be Finance Minister and a dominant figure in in the government, it it has struck me as remarkable the extent to which he has shifted away from his position on climate change, uh, which has been always uh, in in Australia as a as a handbrake on progress, uh, as a sceptic, um, and uh, and and yet he's been able to sort of do that shape shift. So that's interesting. I wonder if, as a result of, because I've seen him saying that you know we you know climate change is a, a preeminent issue and we have to deal with it and so forth as part of his messaging for this job. I wonder if either of you think that let's assume let's let's work on the assumption that Bevan is right that he he has the numbers and he gets the job does that then play back in terms of pressure from uh from him and from the kind of implicit promises he's made in respect of climate for him to use leverage within Australia to stiffen its position I mean we know there's pressure coming on Australia from the Biden administration it already is in a way. It already is in a way because I've been told that Scott Morrison is basically running around telling the right in the Liberal Party, "Hey, look at look at Cormann. Look at what look at what Cormann has faced internationally on climate. We are going to face the exact same thing." He's been able to have this conversion and social use. So it's there's actually a, a political benefit in the party room for Scott Morrison if Coleman wins here because Coleman will approve that someone on the right is able to uh adopt you know embrace net zero and um and and achieve something through that. So it's already happening um uh in terms yeah whether or not Coleman Coleman in the OECD helps push Australia uh, in the direction of net zero, I don't know. I don't really think that's his job if he becomes Secretary General, but the optics the optics of it, I think, are what would, would have the most impact in the party room. The other thing that might have an impact as well is, of course, Morrison being invited to the G7 meeting this year in the UK, and it will be the first big global meeting for essentially two years by the time it happens. And he's not going to want to go there empty-handed. He's not going to want to be shown up by the likes of India, who's also been invited by Joe Biden and the new American administration. Australia doesn't have anywhere to hide on the world stage anymore. And I think that Morrison doesn't like to be unpopular, as we know. He really likes to sort of spin a narrative and be the bloke that everyone wants to have a beer with. And he won't want to go into that room with nothing to say, and he won't want to go into that room exposed by his party room. Yeah, and it seems to me that if Australia's so strongly black-backed Cormann, and it has, it's backed it with all those diplomatic resources. Uh, the Prime Minister's made no secret about it. Australia's been very much officially behind uh, Matthias Cormann's uh, campaign, and a significant part of that campaign has been neutralising past climate 
reluctance, uh, it, it, it's sort of implicit then in Australia's position that it is t- taking, um, you know, that it has obligations to move more quickly here. So, yes, it's going to be very interesting to see how these international um, these international meetings play out, beginning with that uh, that one in um, in June in the the the, uh, the G seven, which Australia will be at. You would know better than us, Mark, but I think it's. I don't think it's a question anymore of whether Scott Morrison will will adopt a net zero by 2050 policy this year. It's just a question of when he when and and how he does it. But I think it's it's inevitable at least before COP 26 in November. Yeah, look, I think that's right, and I also think the thing that's often missed in this discussion is that all of the states and territories have adopted net zero by 2050, uh, and they are in charge of their energy sectors, of course. Uh, and so, you know, companies are already um, and investors are already working to that timetable. We actually have a sort of in, in, a, in a functional sense in significant sectors of the economy net zero commitment by 2050 already. So, um, mm-hmm. th- you know, there, there's, there's, this is such a politically loaded area, as we, as we all know. We've watched it over years. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to Australia's great cost, I think, it's been far more politically freighted than has been in anyone's interest, um, certainly than has been in the national interest. Uh, so, yes, I reckon it's all about the dismount now for, for um, Scott Morrison in terms of how he gets to that kind of uh, that kind of announcement, how he rationalises it, um, it's almost more more of, a, of an unknown than whether or not he's going to do it. I think that's probably right. Um, mm. Look, we're going to have to um, we're going to have to wind up there because uh, we're we're sort of uh, out of time. But it's been terrific having both of you on, Elizabeth Ames and Bevan Shields. Always terrific to have you uh, uh, beaming into us from the UK and uh, putting us straight about what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Good to chat. Yeah, really good to talk to you. That's it for Democracy Sausage Extra for this week. I'll be back uh, early next week with another episode of Democracy Sausage. Until then, bye for now. 